0: Well, we've been going through the book of Genesis. Uh, and as I said, this is kind of the third week of three as we've been looking at really the whole creation account. So, just to bring us all up to speed uh, pretty fast, uh, the first week we talked about all of creation, kind of. The first seven days, and we talked about the significance about those things. Actually, this is the third, this is the fourth, so the, the last three weeks are the three. So, when we're talking about creation, sorry, I was on vacation this week, so my mind's crazy. Um, anyway, so we talked about the creation event in those three weeks. We talked about really what we can know about God from creation. And then the first week, uh, the second week, I should say, we talked about, we zoomed in on day five a little bit, talked about. From Genesis 1, the creation of man and woman and and really humankind and how that's distinct. And then uh, last week we zoomed in on day (coughs) 7. I'm sorry, day 6 and then day 7. And day 7 was we talked about Sabbath and rest and what that means and what that's supposed to look like in the life of a Christian. And so today we're moving into Genesis chapter 2. Actually we were there last week, but really 4 kind of takes a turn. Verse 4 takes a turn. And um, what we're going to be looking at now, Genesis 1 and 2 are both Uh, creation accounts. Genesis 1 is kind of a a, a big picture, 30,000 foot view, getting it all in in place. And Genesis 2 Uh, starting at verse 4, zooms in on that day that man was created and gives us a very detailed account of how Adam and Eve were created and what's going on. So today we're going to be looking at Genesis 4, chapter 2, verse 4 through 14. So we're going to zoom in on that day 6. We're going to get a little bit of man being created. Next week we'll get to um, whenever Eve or woman (coughs) is created. But today we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 2, 4 through 14. Um, And just As as an understanding, Genesis chapter 2 is a continuation of chapter 1, but is also an exposition of chapter 1. Genesis 1 is kind of a big picture idea. Genesis 2 zooms in into that day of six and exposits for us or explains to us how man was created. Because in chapter 1 it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 127, that's it. But Genesis chapter 2 takes that verse and exposits it and and explains it and gives us a little bit more detail about what's going on um, about the creation of man and woman. Now, before we keep going, there's a couple things I want to say by way of introduction. The first is um, we try to, every week, uh, talk about... the gospel. So we we think of the gospel and speak of the gospel here as a diamond. And so there's, it's the the unchanging message of salvation for God for us. But instead of saying the same thing each time, there's so many facets. There's so many beautiful avenues and, and roads to understanding the gospel. You look at it, you can turn it, and you'll see a new perspective of how God in Christ has saved us. And so we try to do that as much as we can. So we're saying the same thing, but Uniquely many different ways because we're uniquely many different personalities that we can understand and enhance the deep love for God and, and drive us into wanting to continue to pursue God, um, enjoy being saved by God, etc. So each week it's the same message, it's the gospel, but it's a different message trying to turn the diamond, if you will, and understand it. Now growing up, if you've grown up in church, you've probably, <clears throat> as people talk about the gospel, the good news, most of us heard the gospel as in... Um, Matt Chandler calls it the gospel on the ground. He uses a distinction of gospel in the air, gospel on the ground. Uh, that's just gospel on the ground, or is, is basically the way that man is saved. Uh, God, man, Christ response, and then the greater one, the gospel in the air that he calls, are the meta narrative of Scripture, or the bigger picture, or the larger story, or whatever you want to say, um, is really how not just man's being saved, but all of creation along with man's being saved. I'm going to talk about that in a second. So we've got God, man, Christ response. There's God, there's man, we sinned, there's Christ. And if we trust in Christ, then we can be saved from our sin. So that needs a response. The response is faith, God, man, Christ response. You need to do that. Go through the Romans road, usually, you know, three twenty-three, six twenty-three, ten nine 6 6-23, 10-9-10, 10 uh, 12, etc. you use those kind of familiar Romans of 5, 8, don't forget 5, 8, and then after you do that, you know, you're saved, right? You talk about that God, man, Christ response, and that's generally, if you've grown up in the South, even in our denomination, the the way that we hear the gospel, Um, but there's actually another way to talk about the gospel, that the Bible talks about the gospel, which I'm all for this, I was saved by that, probably many of you were, Um, but there's a, a, a larger story because that's uniquely about how man is saved. But the other one is not just God, man, Christ's response, but how all of creation, it says in Romans 8, that the the creation itself was groaning inwardly as we await eagerly the salvation of our bodies or the redemption of our souls, Or something like, I think it's 820, you can look it up. But basically it's talking about, it's not just man that's eagerly kind of wanting to finally go home with God, but all of creation, because of Genesis 3, because of the fall, all of creation is broken. Everything's wrong. Cancer, floods. uh, There's everything in creation that's screaming out, redemption, bring redemption. And so all of creation is groaning and desiring. it. So um, that's creation, fall, redemption, reconciliation. And there's differences between the two. God, man, Christ's response really starts at Genesis 3, the fall. But this bigger picture goes back to Genesis 1 and begins with creation, like the Bible, and then goes all the way through. So I'm not against the the gospel on the ground. Um, I was saved by it. But I think that the whole or greater picture is this other idea of um, creation, fall, redemption, reconciliation. So creation was given, then the fall happened, and the fall happened, everything was broken, all of creation, but now everything is going to be redeemed, and finally one day everything will be reconciled unto God. Now, I say that because today, as we're looking at chapter 2, verse 4 through 14, I think that the gospel in the air, this creation, fall, redemption, reconciliation, is um, in that. The outline of that is in that. So the. <clears throat> the text that we're looking at can serve for us as a microcosm of the greater gospel narrative. A, a, it's difficult to see kind of a shadowy way. It's, it's not perfect, but it's clearly there. Creation, fall, redemption, reconciliation is in this text. And the reason why I want you to see it is because every week we need that. Every week we need to hear the gospel. We don't just need to hear helpful things helpful things about how to be a better husband or a better roommate, those things are helpful. But if that's all we hear, and we're not gonna talk about the cross, then what are we doing? Like, what are we doing? We're just having self-help classes. Like, we can, go to, we can go to college for that, right? This, instead, is church, where we need to hear about what God has done for us in Christ. Tell me the gospel. It's what I need this week in order to get through this week to create in me or recreate in me or keep pushing me into or giving me the deep desires to know God, to love God. Remind me that Jesus is the one that bore all the wrath for me, that I don't have to bear it. And because of that, I'm continually trusting in you, God, as my only hope for salvation. So we we need to hear that each week. It's crucial, and that's my job, is to remind you of the gospel. My job every week is to turn the diamond to give you another aspect because you're all uniquely different. And one of those, each week I'm hoping as we talk about the, the gospel will push you either into faith or if you're in the faith, continuing and driving into the faith, pushing and knowing God more, wanting to do those things. So I don't have to tell you, love your roommate better. I think that if you love Jesus, the overflow is that you'll love your wife. You'll love your roommate. You'll care about others. You'll serve the poor. You'll kill sin in your life instead of me just attacking the, the things, I think if we talk about the gospel, the, the overflow is naturally going to work itself out. Now, that's the first kind of introduction. I've got one other thing I want to say. I know this is insane, right? Um, when we talk about communion with God, when we talk about communion with Jesus, um, does that make you uncomfortable? Generally, most, most of us, if we've been in church, will say No. Like the idea of communion, closeness, relationship. I even dare say intimacy, though that word has different connotations now. Intimacy with Jesus. Most of us, if we're just talking about that in some kind of cognitive understanding, we'd say, "Ah, that doesn't make me uncomfortable. I think it's good. God created me to have a relationship with him. I like the idea of that. But if we turn it a little bit, and I think where it gets a little bit uncomfortable, if we don't talk about the idea of it, of everybody experiencing, but then I turn it and I say, then what about you? How are you doing at communion with God? How are you individually doing at pursuing relationship, closeness, intimacy with God? That's where we get uncomfortable because we're all, if we're all honest, like most of us would say either it's going okay and it could get better or I really stink at it. I just, and it's somewhere in that continuum, right? For we're all honest, I don't think any of us are going to say perfect. I mean, Next to Jesus, I'm like, right there, I got it. Jesus is there, but I'm like, if this is Jesus, I would, I'm just, I'm right here. Like, no one's gonna say that, right? No one's gonna say that. Um, And so when we talk about communion, I think, or intimacy, or closeness, or relationship, I think that most of us get uncomfortable because we know that there's so much more that we could do. There's so many available resources that God has given us to drive us into deeper communion with them, that we just don't necessarily take advantage or tap into, like the Bible or community, um, killing sin. Killing sin drives us into deeper walk with Jesus because when we don't want that, we do want Jesus or the simple act of telling the gospel to people. As we see people get saved, there wells up within us a deep love for God. It's like, I can't believe you used me for that. Wow. And then you, you have a deeper communion with God. that He used you. So there's all kinds of available resources of, that are for us that I don't think we, that we have. So what I want to do today, as we're looking at 4 through 14, kind of getting this big picture of the gospel, the the gospel in the air, I want us to see the thread that runs through this, in that you were created for communion. I don't want to talk about the, the resources that you might not necessarily take advantage of, as much as I want to drive more to the source of it, and help you see what's, What's really kind of present in this, as we're talking about the gospel, one of the things that the author or Moses is writing is wanting you to see is that you were created for the purpose. The gospel is screaming out to you. You were created not just to be forgiven of sin, but to have communion with God. That's why he, that's why he created you. He wants you to have relationship, closeness, intimacy, if you will. He wants you to have that. That's, that's what you were created for. And if you're honest, like everything inside of you knows that. Everything inside of you, whenever you're not close, there's something in you that yearns for that. And it's just a God-given desire. It's a God-given desire. So we're looking at verse four. I'm going to go ahead and read it. And here we're going to see the special relationship with God and man really beginning, like really beginning, um, as differently as maybe it was explained to us in chapter one. Verse four and following, I'm gonna read the whole text. Um, I'm gonna do my best to just read it and not talk, but I won't do very well. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Already referencing Genesis one and one and two, the heavens and the earth. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground in a mist or, or a spring, thinking of like water gushing up, if you will. A mist was going up from the land and it was watering the whole face of the ground. That's why there was no rain because it was all taken care of. Um, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Some translations will say a living soul. Um, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. In the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, and there is gold where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedellum and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon, or Gihon, or whatever, we don't know. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is Euphrates. All right. So that's the text. And what I want to do now is kind of walk through and helping us see that gospel meta-narrative as we're going through it. And the whole point that we're trying to reiterate or the common thread as we're going 4 through 14, as we're talking about this great gospel narrative, is that God has created you for communion, relationship, closeness, depth of relationship with him. So verse four, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. So we can already see the language of heavens and earth this the author is intentionally, explicitly returning our minds to the heavens and the earth, which are mentioned there in Genesis 1, 1 through 2. I'll just read it to you. You probably already know it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So he's already returning us to the very beginning using that heavens and the earth language. Now, if you remember when we talked about this, that particular set of verses, one and two, is not the days of creation that starts in verse three. So God created the heavens and the earth, and as he created in the he- heavens and the earth, it says there, without form and void, tohu and rebohu, or something like that in Hebrew. And it's basically, it's chaos. It's chaos everywhere, but the spirit of God is present. The spirit of God is present. And so the rest of creation that starts in day three, thus was day one. So there was creation, and then there's some kind of time period. We can talk about that all we want, but I don't know. We, no one knows. But then, day verse three ushers in day one, and God said, "Let there be light." So there was this something, and there was t- it was the earth and the heavens and the earth. It was without form and void. It was chaos. But you have verse two: the Spirit of God's there. He's hovering. He's bringing um, order to the chaos. And then day three, as you see, as the creation unfolds, everything that's happening in those six days of creation is an answer to that chaos. As that chaos was there and the Spirit of God was present, then you have days one through six, bringing order to that chaos. And that's, that's the gospel, right? Sin brings chaos in our life, but the Holy Spirit is present. And the gospel is identifying those orders of chaos, that sin in our life, and bringing in some sanctification, continual manner, order to our life. So, I mean, it's very similar to, to the salvation as we're seeing it. But here over in verse 4 in chapter 2, we see that these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they created in that day the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And so we already see in verse 4 um, a, a mention of creation. we we see a mention of creation. As I said, this order in this particular text, it's it's shadowed a little bit. It's it's tough to see, but it's clearly there. A pattern of creation, fall, redemption, reconciliation. So in verse 4, we see creation as it mentions the words of heavens and the earth. And then it also says, this is is quite interesting. Verse 4, And the day that the, here it is, Lord God made the heavens and the earth. Now, Thus far, as it's been talking about God, it's only called him God. It's not called him Lord God. It's only used God as an Elohim. Now in chapter 2, and you'll notice if you want to count, you can, but it's 11. It's 11 times that he mentions Lord God. And then as you keep going to verse 3, it doesn't use that phrase anymore. So in chapter 2, in chapter 2 alone, where we're zooming in on the, the closeness of relationship beginning between God and man, he's going to use this title of Lord God, Yahweh, The Tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, God, Elohim. Yahweh, Elohim. He's going to use that title over and over. And as he uses this rare occurrence, it doesn't happen really anywhere else in the Bible, together like this, it's a rarity. One other place was uh, Jonah 4, 6, the Lord God created a plant. Um, And I think this is just speculation. I think that it uses Lord God in Jonah 4, 6 because it's talking about creating plants. And I think that's making us remember that he did that in Genesis 1. That's just... Complete speculation, I have no idea if that's the case. But other than that, there's, it's not in the Bible. Like, it's Genesis 2, and it's 11 times. 11 times this rare use of Lord God, um, y- Yahweh Elohim, signifying to us that this is the title that mankind is to experience and know God by. We're to know him. We're to have this deep human kindness to know God as this deep experience of our Yahweh, I am, Elohim, God, Lord. Like, that's the way that we're supposed to know him. And it's there and present in chapter two, where creation has happened before the fall has happened. This perfect knowledge and understanding and communion of God, this great title. It says the com- One commentator says, the combination of names... Shows that the creator of the cosmos rules history throughout, um, through the chosen humanity. So he's, he's chosen man and he rules over them, but he also knows them intimately. God has been um, introduced to, them, uh, to him as Lord God. So we, we can already see this common thread of communion that's present, even in just a title. Now, as we keep going to verse 5, we're going to move from creation. That was the first one, that was creation, into fall. Verse 5 is crazy. It's it's hard to explain. I'm going to do my best. um, So stick with me on this. All right. Verse 5 is going to explain or uh, refer to the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1, 1 through 2. Remember in Genesis 1 1 through 2, as it said, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. The darkness was over the face of the deep. Verse 5 is going to look back at that set of verses and say, This is what the earth was like in Genesis 1, 1 through 2. And it's going to explain it in verse 5. But the language that it uses in verse 5 is very interesting. Because it's also, the language that it uses is going to make us think about Genesis 3, which is the fall. All right? I know that was, stick with me. Here it is. When no bush of the field was yet in the land. That's not anywhere else besides in Genesis 1 through 1 through 2. It says, no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. That's all describing the condition of the land before uh, the days of creation. That's describing the land in Genesis 1, chapter chapter one, verses one through two. But the language that Moses chooses to use here sounds a lot like Genesis chapter three when he's talking about right after the fall happens, in Genesis chapter three, this is what God says to Adam after the fall happens. These are the curses that are given. In uh, 317, he said to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring for you. <clears throat> It shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. There it is, plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, so it's going to be tough work. Man has to work the ground. You, you shall eat the bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, and you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now, this idea of dust, um, language is present in Genesis chapter 3, talking about the fall. Now, here we go. When it says bush of the field or small plant of the field in verse 5, that's talking about this plant of the field that's in Genesis 3.18. So Moses, as he's writing two five, is remembering the fall, and he's using similar language in two five and 3.18, but he's describing Genesis 1, 1 through 2. Pretty interesting, right? I, I think that I said that, that you can understand it. But what we're seeing here is that he's talking about, in a lot of ways, he's talking about the fall. So we have... Um, cause rain upon the earth. Why does he say that? Why does he say in verse five, um, the Lord God had not caused uh, it to rain on the land. That's pushing the reader forward to remember in Genesis three, he caused rain to come upon the land because of the fall. You have the big flood episode, another instance. And it says in verse five, and there was no man to work the ground well, that's a reference to 3.19 where it says, by the sweat of your face, you're gonna eat. Man has to work the ground now. And, and just an obvious thing, um, no bush of the field, no small plant of the field. If he's talking about fields in 2.5, fields don't come till after the fall. God planted a garden and said, here's the garden, you can eat it. There's a garden, there's no fields. But when the fall happens, then man has to work. And as man works, he plants fields. And so the idea or the concept of Fields being there are all Genesis 3. They're post-fall ideas. And so here, as he's talking about in verse 5, things that are going on before, he's also warning the reader to be pre-ready or to be um, prepared for the the fall that's going to be coming in Genesis 3. So here we can see the fall. So we've got creation mentioned in 4. Now we've got the fall that's being mentioned. And he also mentions it in verse 7. It says, "...then the Lord God formed the man of dust..." So we, we can see this mention of dust, which is already right there in 317. Uh, I'm sorry, 319, for you a dust and dust you shall return. So the idea of dust and being dust as we're created is present. This is all kind of reminding us of the fall. But God's going to, as he's creating here, um, this, this land and this mist, he's going to continue to do things to foster or build a place for man to have perfect relationship with God. Um, verse 6, <clears throat> And a mist or a spring was going up from the land and it was watering the whole face of the ground. So rain hasn't happened yet and there's no need for rain because you've got, you've got Eden. We're gonna get to this in a second. You've got the garden and in there, there's a spring coming up. This mist. And the this, this spring's coming up and it's literally giving water to all that's present. And we're going to see it's actually going to create, the, those springs are going to create four different rivers that go to the four corners of the earth. So all the earth is being watered by this one source, the spring coming up, watering the entire earth. So what do you need rain for? You don't need rain. Just everything's being watered right here by this mist or this spring that's coming up from the land in verse 6. Um, Verse 7, then the Lord God, again, over and over he's going to say Lord God, formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So this is, this is man being created. This, this is unlike any other created thing. Um, I know it's kind of weird to think that God like, grabbed man's face and was like, like breathing into us. Every time I was reading it before and it made me laugh. So it sounds funny, but it's very interesting that the way that he creates us is that he forms us from the ground and breathes life into us. Now, if, if you remember, as we're looking at Genesis 1, that's not how other things were created. Just spoke it and there it was. Just spoke it and there it was. But when man's created, we're uniquely different. He's literally going to form us from the dust of the ground And his own breath is going to be breathed into us to give us life. Pretty interesting. And then it says, um, And the man became a living creature. The man became a living creature. This living creature can also be translated living soul. So there's a balance that we're wanting to strike between those things. Because we are a creature. Like all of the things that were created in Genesis one, they're all creatures, and we're creatures. So we're like them in the sense that we're not God. <laughs> they have a create; we all have a creator. He's God, and we're creatures. However, we were also not just created, as it says, as living creatures. But man is distinct because it's now created as a living soul. So just like we're like the animals that we're not like God, we are not like the animals. We stand as the unique different in all creation because we also have a living soul. Animals don't have souls. We have souls. So we're different than the rest of it. So there's this balance that we have to strike in that we're not God, but we're not creatures. We are the pinnacle of all of creation. Man is the highest point of all of creation. We're made in the image of God. There's something distinctly different and precious about us. We're not God at all. Like, not at all. He is infinitely more, um, important than us if you will but we're very important to god that he creates us uniquely different than the rest and creates us as someone he wants to have a relationship with he's not having a relationship with the rest of creation it's not like he's hanging out with the hibiscus trees like oh hibiscus tree how's it been going today i'm mean, gonna I got five minutes for you i gotta go talk to the monkey like no that's not happening right it's just us that he's created <laughs> that's ridiculous created us to have this deep relationship with the rest of creation is for us to enjoy, and as we enjoy, our desire and love doesn't terminate on that created thing, yet we use it as a tool to drive us to give more love and worship and glory to him. All of created things are for us to push us to know him more, more intimately, to more know him more deeply. So they're all good gifts to us. So <clears throat> in verse seven, it says, the Lord God formed the man of dust. So this is God literally entering the story So he's in the story already speaking. But here is a special kind of entering that he's coming into the story and forming man with his own hands and breathing life into us. It's a different kind of entering into the story. And the reason why he did this is to redeem us. Like we can already see some redemption overtones happening, especially in here where it says, then the Lord God formed the man of dust and the way that he creates us, um, redemption overtones. He formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So human beings have the very breath of God sustaining us. The very breath of God. And this breath of life um, giving us life physical sounds very much like John chapter three where the spirit comes and gives us life. So in John chapter three, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night and he's talking about being born again. And Jesus said, you have to be born again. He's like, what do you mean by born again? I can't enter into my mother's womb again and be born. That doesn't sound like logical to me, Jesus. And then Jesus answers in chapter three, verse eight, by saying, the wind blows. That wind can also be translated spirit. So it's, It's ruah, uh, uh, no, penuma. Ruah is in the Old Testament in the the Hebrew. Penuma is spirit in the Greek. And so we we know that he's talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit blows just like wind wherever it wants to. When you're outside and you hear wind blowing, you, you hear it. You know it's there, but you don't see it. And it goes wherever it wants to. And he says, in the same way, the Holy Spirit, whenever he goes into a heart and regenerates them and helps them undersee the good news of the gospel, that they understand who Christ is, they understand what Christ has done, and their mind is open to see, oh, I just don't have some kind of cognitive, academic understanding that there was a man named Jesus that lived and died and then he was resurrected. Oh, that's a nice little story. But instead, the truth of that story has invaded my heart and mind and I see that that was the death I should have died and he died it for me. And so I'm going to put all my trust and faith in him, not in my own self, but in him. I'm banking everything in his work, not mine. And because of that, I can't get over the fact that he saved me now. That blows my mind. He didn't have to do that at all. And now the rest of my life is me giving evidence of what's already happened, living my life, showing that Jesus is my highest treasure forever. And when that happened, that decision to follow Jesus, put your faith, that was because the Spirit came, as it says in eight. The, spi- the wind blows where it wishes. You do not hear it sound, and you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who it is, born of the Spirit. So there's a moment And every Christian's life where the Holy Spirit comes and regenerates them, or they're born again, where they see and understand all the depths of the gospel, the good news, it's traveled 18 inches from their brain to their heart, if you will. And they understand what the good news of the gospel is. And they're transformed forever. And they want to live their entire life for him. And they've now been given spiritual life. That's what's going on here. In Genesis chapter 2, breath is being breathed into man and he's been giving physical life in the same way in John chapter 3 and many, many verses in the Bible. The Spirit comes and breathes life into us and gives us spiritual life. So we can already see the redemptive overtones that will take place in the rest of the Bible in Genesis chapter 2. Don't think that the gospel is only in the New Testament. Like we're, 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 uh, we're two pages in and I think every time we've seen all kinds of gospel stuff in the first two pages of the Bible. It's all in there. The gospel is all over the Bible. So breathing of life into Adam um, is the same as the Holy Spirit breathing life into us and giving us spiritual life. Now, um, there's some differences in this. So we're We've talked about creation, fall, and redemption. I want to take just one little break here in the text because I also want to exposit the text as faithfully as we can and talk about one little thing, which is there is a difference um, in the text between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 in the creation of man. And I want to point out two distinct that I see differences from chapter 1 to chapter 2. So in chapter 1, we've got, as it says in 127... So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we've got in Genesis chapter one, God, both Adam and Eve, uh, God is creating both Adam and Eve in the image of God. Very distinct. The writer makes a huge, huge difference here. I don't know that it could be any different. In chapter two, we're not mentioned at all to be in the image of God. In chapter one, we're, we're created in the image of God. In chapter two, we're fashioned from dirt. That's a pretty big difference. Like, if there's a greater contrast that could be drawn, I don't know what it is. Made in the image of God, made out of dirty mud. Just fashioned together. Not even created, it's just formed. Like, formed out of dirt. So there's a big difference there. And so, that's the balance that the Bible's always trying to help us see. Man is uniquely different than the rest of creation, but man's still a creature. Man is frail. We We are missed. We are a vapor. Like anything can happen and we're gone. We don't live forever at all. We're, we're very fragile people. And so we're just created out of dust. That's the first di- difference, is that man's created from the ground in chapter 2. Man's created in the likeness of God in chapter 1. That's a big contrast. The second contrast um, is the actual way that male and females are created. In chapter 1, it's just kind of they're, male and female are just kind of lumped together in one story. And it's just the very end of 27. Male and female, he created them. <laughs> but in chapter two, it actually gives a lot more detail about the, the difference of how male and females were created. We wouldn't have any idea that they were d- uniquely created differently uh, if we just had chapter one. Male and female, he created them. But in chapter two, it tells us in 2.7 that man was formed of the dust and God literally breathed life into him. And then in verse 22, you've got the female being created in a a much uniquely different way. She was literally taken out of man, out of his rib, and then God formed, or fashioned, you can see it in 22, and the rib that the Lord God had taken, um, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So the woman was created differently than the man in a beautiful way. It's not in some kind of, you know, second class way, in a very beautiful way. And they're created differently. And so we can already see the ideas of, in chapter one, every man, every woman has equal dignity, value, and worth because they're all made in the image of God. Equal dignity, value, and worth. But in chapter two, whenever we're talking about creation, we can already see that we are different. We don't need like a class for this, right? There's no special theological thing that you need to go to. You can just put a man and put a woman beside each other, you can say they're different. They're not the same. They have equal dignity, value, and worth, but they're definitely different, right? And so there's, we, we should enjoy and celebrate the differences, not try to make them the same. I'm not saying that one's better than the other. I'm not saying like, here's man and here's woman. I'm saying man and woman are the same that they're created in dignity, value, and worth, but they're also different. One's no greater than the other. The woman was taken out of the man. So a very, I think, complementarian view is in, is um, what should be understood here in that they complement one another. The woman was given to the man and therefore, I don't have to go into that and talk about that next week because I'm, I'm going to get into those texts, but we can already see, even in the creation of man and woman, that they're very different and that they were made to complement one another. And this, isn't, this is all before the fall. It's not like, Woman, you were created out of man. Therefore, you should be the helpmate and help him because the Lord knows he needs it. Um, and that's some kind of curse now. Like That's all before the fall, right? That's all before the fall. So it's not part of the fall's curse that you have to be the helper of the man. It's actually a good thing because we're a mess. We're just a mess. We absolutely need it. Anyway, um, I know God's our savior, but praise the Lord he gives us wives. Um, anyway, back to this. <coughs> um, Back to the uh, distinctions. So we see that they're created in essentially two different ways. And so we also see that the redemption language is present in this particular uh, set of verses where he's creating um, man and woman out of uh, his breath and as he creates them, a, a man out of his breath, And the same way he gives physical life, the spirit gives spiritual life. And ultimately, we need to understand this great redemption that we've received and Um, Just in the same way, I would even say that in the same way that man and female are created differently, salvation, though it happens the same, like creation happens basically the same in Genesis 1 for men and women, salvation also happens differently for us because we're person, just like the creation happens differently for man and woman, salvation happens differently for all of us in certain ways. We all have to do it by faith in Jesus alone, right? But it happens differently, whether it be in church or out of church or a friend tells you or not tells you or your personality, you need to hear... That avenue of the gospel, not this avenue of the gospel, the diamond needs to be turned a different way because each of us are uniquely different people. Uniquely different people. And so I say that as a way of encouragement. If you are sharing the gospel with your roommate, your crazy uncle, whatever, and nothing's happening, realize that they're not you. And they need to maybe hear a different avenue of the diamond of the gospel. Don't just harp on them that same thing. Think of something different another great truth of the gospel, and use that as a way to explain the gospel because we're all different. We all need to be saved in different ways, although we're all saved by Christ alone through faith alone. All right, keep going. Um, In verse eight, we've moved from creation, fall, redemption. Now we're gonna start moving into reconciliation or restoration, whichever one you prefer. Verse eight, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. So, We've got the garden that's planted in Eden. It's not the garden of Eden. It's the garden in Eden. So think of Eden as a larger area, and you've got the garden in Eden. In Eden. Eden means uh, love, delight. It's this idea that this place in, in Eden, this garden, this special garden that's in Eden, is a place of um, that God has put man that they can experience the greatest l- levels of love and harmony and delight with God. This is what Eden means. And he put it on the east side because they're moving on up to the east side, if you know what I mean. Like, the, it's, it's like the best place. Uh, that's a Jefferson reference. You probably have to be over 30 to even know what I'm talking about. But Wheezy was awesome. Anyway, back to verse eight. Wheezy! Anyway, verse eight. Um, and, and the Lord planted a garden and put it in Eden and he put it in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. The putting of the man is suggesting that humanity, all of mankind, is meant for fellowship with God in this garden. That's what we're created for. You were created for, and Adam and all of us are created for this deep love relationship with God. That's why he put us there. In Eden, he made a garden. I mean, how awesome is this? God made a garden in Eden, this big place of... of um, intimacy and delight. He made a garden for them inside of that, which is uniquely different than the rest. You've got, you've got Eden, which is kind of like wilderness. There's a, we, we can know just from um, general revelation, there's a difference between wilderness and garden. You know, wilderness is beautiful, but then garden is even more beautiful, more aesthetics, more intentionality, more perfection, if you will. And so God puts them there, puts them in this garden. What, what great vivid language of reconciliation and restoration, which is, if you know, garden is all kind of a a precursor, if you will, or a a theme that kind of pushes us forward to see that the new heavens and the new earth are returned to the garden. Um, So here we have um, him putting them in the garden on the east side, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So he even provides everything that they need for sustenance, everything that they absolutely need. They have God himself, they have food there. Everything that they need is there. There's much delight in there. there the garden is in Eden, it's not the garden of Eden, and they're in an absolute, utter paradise. Some translations even say paradise, as Luke references that today, where Jesus says, you'll be a man in paradise. And so everything is perfect. The Lord God has put trees there, pleasant for, for uh, food. God's supplying everything that's needed for sustenance. So God creates all this and it's, it's all waiting. It's created for the arrival of man. Like all this is for man to be there and for man to be there to enjoy this perfect relationship with God. Intimacy, communion. If we just stop there and we don't get to Genesis 3, just imagine that. This is what you were created for. You're like, I don't even like leaves. That, that's not the point, right? It's not that you have to live outside now, right? The point is, this is perfect paradise, perfect communion with God, and every need you have ever needed met. This is what you were created for. Why would we flee from that? Well, look look at this. We'll give a little bit of hint. Um, Jack's preaching Genesis three, the fall. So I don't want to, I don't want to take too much of his thunder, if you will. Um, but here we have uh, verse nine. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of evil. So there's, there's two trees. Um, there's two trees present. They, you have Eden, you have the garden, and right there in the middle, you've got the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life, as it's kind of mentioned throughout the Bible, it's a little bit elusive. It's not mentioned much. Um, there's one in Proverbs and there's one in, I think, Revelation 22. Uh, And this is the tree. This tree, this tree of life is one that heals. Commentators say it heals. It enhances life. It celebrates life. This tree's uh, mentioned first. It seems to not be the focus of the narrative. It seems to not be the focus of Adam and Eve. uh, But the other tree is. And the reason why commentators are saying is because it's the tree of life. It's the one that in our humanity tend to run away from, right? We choose the other one. Um, Humans will choose Power or knowledge or knowledge of good and evil, or I would say selfishness, over life. So that's the tree of life. The second one is the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is referenced, in, if you want to find that place in Genesis 3, where they eat of it. You can see it in 3 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, that's the tree, um, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Here it is, knowing good and evil. So we know that we're talking about the second tree that they eat of, which brings death. Um, and the language that the Bible uses to talk about this tree of knowledge of good and evil is that it's forbidden. Um, the tree creates ethical awareness in the human agent. We are now aware of good and evil. We are aware of things that are right and things that are wrong. Adam and Eve will soon discover this one chapter later. We don't get very long of paradise. We don't get very long. Like, we get one chapter, which is just stinks. Um, This tree will make them vulnerable. The presence of this tree will make them vulnerable. I'll argue in just a second. It doesn't make them sin. I'll explain why. They become aware of good, and that good can bring life. We know that good does bring life to us. Um, But they also become aware of evil, the, the, the knowledge of good and evil. And evil hinders evil destroys, just to illustrate that evil hinders the, the, the evil side not the <coughs> not the good have you 've ever seen this movie uh, the matrix if you haven 't it 's pretty awesome it 's like a one you should see in your lifetime um, there 's a lot of violence, so you know you need to be old enough to watch it. Anyway, so it's got Keanu Reeves, uh, you know, everyone to this side of the bus, that guy from Speed. So he's he's having a conversation. He's having a conversation with the computer. I don't know, it's got the guy in the glasses. I think his name's Mr. Smith or Jones. It's something real generic. Um, so he's having this computer and Keanu's like, why are you doing this? And so the guy's like, because humans are a virus. You know, you are nothing more than a virus and you just destroy everything, which in some ways, that's a very post-fall, you know, nihilistic view of man that we are that way, which is in some ways true. It's not ultimately true because the guy who wrote that hasn't read, you know, Revelation, right? So it all gets better um, and doesn't know the gospel that Jesus changes all that in us. But the idea is that humans are capable of wretched evil because we are. Like, sin is like a virus. It's not we, but sin in us does bring violence and destroys. That's what sin does. And so it is absolutely true. So we have these two trees. Um, Just as a little side note, and I don't want to steal Jack's thunder. we, We think of that and we think, why did God do that? you know what I mean? Like you've got, you've got this big thing and you've got the garden and you put it right there in the middle and you put a spotlight on it and it's glowing gold. And God's like, you can have anything else you want except for this unbelievable looking thing right here, right here in the very middle, whatever you want, anything else, but not that. And we all have kids. Like If we put them in a room, I'm like, Aiden, you can play with any toy except for this one right here. Within 30 seconds, it's broken. Like within 30 seconds, it's broken. And so we think, Why did God do that? Why put that massive piece of temptation right there in front of them? Well, we got to remember that idea. um, We're thinking through a Genesis 3 lens. Like, that did not enter the minds of them in Genesis 2. They didn't think corruptly. They did not have a corrupt nature yet. So when they hear that, they're like, all right, why do I want that? The vulnerability of that tree being there is because the serpent comes and whispers lies. That's, the, the serpent is the one that makes them question. The serpent is the one that makes um, them sin. He, he comes <clears throat> and tempts them. But without the serpent, I don't think it would have happened. Why the serpent came, that's a big, bigger, larger, you know, question that we're not going to get into at all today. Um, so here we have, we're getting down, we have the tree of good and evil. And now, a lot of commentators, as you get to 10 through 14, are like, we don't even know why this is here. Let's just jump to 15, um, but we're not going to do that because I think it's the Bible, and, and God arranged this, not you, Mr. Commentator, and he has it in this order because he knows what he's doing. He's way smarter than us. So here we have this verse 10 through 14, where really Moses is just trying to explain to us these four rivers. Um, the, the point, I think, of 10 through 14 is to give us some level of location of Eden, though I don't think it's, it's, it's possible. Luther says this, Martin Luther says that the, uh, his view is that the actual location of the garden is completely lost after the flood. The, the flood was so altering to all of the created order um, and earth itself that the crea- finding it is, is, ultra, is ultimately not going to happen. Even, the, you can see the four rivers, the Tigris and Euphrates, which we still know, he says, are likely even kind of moved around because of this massive flood. And you, they're probably not in the same locations as even Moses is giving us here. So, um, What's the point? Well, I'm gonna to explain to you what I think the point of this being here, uh, but we have to remember verse six as we, as we go through it. So let's look at it. Um, a river flowed out of Eden, uh, delight, perfect wonderfulness. A river flowed out of that to, um, to water the garden, and there it divided into f- and became four rivers. So we have this idea of four rivers. The name of them are Pishon, Gihon, Tigris, and Euphrates. And if you're like me, i like, don't know the first one, know the second one, heard the other two, um, Sailhammer points out something that's pretty interesting. If you notice, it's like Pishon and got to give us a whole bunch of stuff because like who knows what that is. And same with Gihon. And then it's like, oh yeah, Antiochus Euphrates. You know, like like, why does he barely say anything? Yeah, you got those two. And the reason why Sailhammer says, um, note the amount of description given to each of the four rivers is in inverse proportion to the certainty of the identification of each of the rivers. So the reason why he's giving us so much about Gihon and Pishon is because he you knows that none of us know where that is. Like, we never heard of it. Like, what are those? But Tigre's got those. You don't have to talk about that too much. Um, and that's because he's wanting us to understand, in some ways, the location. Um, but I think that even more, what Moses is trying to do is not necessarily just the location, but giving us a better understanding of what those rivers were doing. All right, so here we have four rivers flowing out, really watering the end of the earth. And it all comes from, it says, verse six, and a mist or a spring was going up. So we've got this spring coming up in the midst. And as it's coming up, it's watering all of this Eden. And as it's watering all of this Eden, it's literally forming itself into four rivers. And those four rivers extend out and literally water the entire heavens and earth. That's pretty amazing. And I think as we read that and we hear that, this source or this spring is... Representative of or a metaphor for what Jesus will be for us in heaven. You have this one source that we all need the spring that comes up and literally gives life and nurtures and invites us in and goes to all the ends of the earth or goes to all those who are in heaven. And He is for us our final reconciliation where we receive all of our life and sustenance in the garden, which is for us our final place, our garden in heaven. So, Jesus is providing for us. It's, one commentator says, this river provides food and healing as a symbolic, and it's symbolic of the springs of living water, the life that issues from the throne of the living God. So this is just for us in some ways, an illustration for us what Jesus will be for us in heaven. I mean, amazing. This is an amazing language. As, especially as we're talking about communion with God, intimacy, relationship, Everything that we need is found at the fountainhead. Everything that we need for communion is found at the source, specifically in Christ. So why are we searching other places? Why are we going to other things? Why are we looking at other things? Sailhammer even says that as he's describing in verses 10 through 14, these rivers and this garden... And the language that he uses, he says that the language that he uses describing the gardening is very similar to the exact language that's used to describe the tabernacle in Exodus 25 to 27. Tell Homer's a language guy. So when he sees similar things, he wants to point those out, which I appreciate because I think the Holy Spirit did that on purpose. In Exodus 25 and 27, as you read the tabernacle, the whole point of the tabernacle is where God comes and communes with his people. And so that's what's going on here. This is a representation of the future tabernacle or the future heavens and the earth. This is the primary, perfect, first ever created location, Eden, delight, love, harmony, where God has created for man to have deep, loving relationship with us. And we will be reconciled or return to that one day in heaven. That's why that particular section is in the Bible. The, the, the garden or the tabernacle is a beckoning to all of us to come now and commune with God to do the very thing which you were created for. To do the very thing which you were created for is to have deep relationship with him. Closeness. To no longer say, oh, I like the idea of that. That's a good thing for people. But individually, ah, it just doesn't happen for me. I just don't, I just don't do it very well. It's a beckoning or a calling or an invitation to pursuing it now. I want to conclude with um, a verse that's the other end of the Bible. Revelation chapter three. This is an interesting text. In Revelation chapter three, verse 20, this is Jesus speaking to the church. That means Christians. In the Bible, when it talks about the church, it's talking about Christians. It's talking to the church in Laodicea. And it says in 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. So we know, like, there's something personal when we eat with people. Like, God has created food that when we eat it with people, that's why you go out to dinner with, on a date. You don't go out and, hey, let's go play lacrosse for a date. Maybe you do, but, but if you eat dinner, like, that's just something more intimate, Right? because food was created by God to create an intimacy. Now, here's the interesting thing. As we look at that particular text, this text has been misused quite often in an evangelistic sense. I'm not saying I understand the intent, but the context of this verse is Jesus is talking to believers, not unbelievers. It's not saying, hey, unbeliever, I'm knocking on your door, just invite me in so you can be saved. That's not the context. Instead, he's talking to the church. He's talking to believers, He's talking to people that already are saved, that in some ways, what's very obvious to us are not experiencing communion. So this is what I mean. I think if we're going to paint it in kind of our, in our picture of what we've been talking about today is you've got people that have understood the gospel on the ground. God, man, sin, response. And that's what they understand, that God has forgiven me of my sin. And That's awesome. I mean, it's a beautiful thing to be forgiven for our sin. To have those feelings of guilt and shame and dirtiness to be taken away and be told that we're clean. But don't miss this. You're not just saved by God in order to take away dirty stains or guilt pains or shame. But you're also saved by God to also be ushered into depth of communion and relationship and closeness with God being declared clean is a beautiful thing I'm not diminishing that whatsoever I'm so thankful for that but that's not the primary purpose for our salvation It's part of it but the reason why God saves us is because he's inviting us into this deep loving relationship so if we're looking at this there's a couple questions I think that pop out at Revelation 3.20 The first one is, who's Jesus talking to? Well, he's not talking to unbelievers. He's talking to the church. So he's talking to believers. And once we establish that, the even greater question I think is this. Why is Jesus outside? Why is Jesus outside? And I think that's symbolic maybe for where you are. When we talk about communion and you're honest, you're on that continuum of, I'm okay, all right, stink. Perhaps some kind of um, picture is being painted here at Revelation 3.20. Where he's like knocking and he's saying, I've forgiven your sin. You've been declared innocent. You're, you're completely righteous. But I didn't just save you to forgive you of your sin. I saved you that you would invite me in and we could come eat together, commune together, sup together, be in closeness of relationship together. And if you're honest... You do some real heart searching. Maybe that's you today. Sin's just too easy to indulge in. But closeness with God helps you fight it. Not telling someone about Jesus is so easy. Closeness with God helps you start having the Holy Spirit wrought courage to start talking about Jesus. Staying away from community, not reading the Bible, that's easy. I get to do whatever I want. But intimacy and depth with God makes me want to read the Bible, makes me want to be in his community where I can encourage people and they can encourage me. There's so many things about the goodness of this intimacy that he's given us. May we not be like the church at Laodicea. Going through our day, unbeknownst that Jesus is standing outside our door and we're just kind of cruise controlling through life and nothing's even clicking in our minds I'm created for intimacy with God I'm not created to live on a self-serving path I'm created to live on a God glorifying path we were created to commune with Jesus to have him be an intimate deep part of our life a deep relationship with him you weren't just saved to be forgiven of sin that's awesome May you never lose sight and commune with him daily and do the very thing that you were created to do. Have deep relationship with him. We're gonna go into a time of response and here's my only plea. You just think and pray about where you are, where you are spiritually. And if you would put some kind of wording or category on your relationship with God, deep, not deep, where you are in that continuum, and then just pray. God, you know where I am, and I don't want to be here. Would you come now? Show me the depth of love that I can have for you. Show me the depth of relationship that I can have with you. And then start pursuing it. Pursue it. Pursue him in his word. Pursue him in a community of believers. Kill sin. Don't choose it. Tell other people about him. I'm going to pray, and we have a few songs here. There's there's a little space where you can think and pray, and just know that if the conviction of the Spirit's coming, it's always gentle. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, Romans 2.4. It's always his kindness. He's not mad at you. So lean into that and realize that Holy Spirit, God loves you more than you could ever conceive. You were created to have deep communion with him. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for today. Thank you for this time that we can can get together and study your word. I pray, God, that you would use it to move us, shape us, make us aware of really the selfish places in our heart where we're either unbeknownst to ourselves that we don't have deep communion with you or we do know and we're just, selfishly rebelling against that. I pray for all my friends here that if anyone doesn't know you, they've never heard the gospel and trusted Christ for the salvation of their sins, believed in his work on the cross for them, that they would trust Jesus today and be saved. For those that are believers, God, I pray that you would, Holy Spirit, work deeply in their lives and give them a deep desire to want to commune with you have deep, close relationship with you the rest of their life. And pursue that. Pursue it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.